I'm not unhappy about the idea of innovation. I just think it's not true to say it's new. It's always been part of what we do as academics and intellectuals in a public university. So for me, my worry about the culture and creative economy is that creativity does not only belong to the creatives and to artists. Creativity is everywhere. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Krista Dacheri, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Avril Joffe, currently the Postgraduate Program Coordinator and previously the Head of the Department of Cultural Policy and Management in the Witt School of Arts. Under Avril's headship, the department was renamed to focus on cultural policy and management and has developed a range of productive relationships with institutions in both the global North and South, including King's College London and the Center for Cultural and Creative Industries at Peking University, China, and in South Africa with Business Arts South Africa, the National Arts Council and the Goethe Institute. The department offers elective courses in cultural policy and management to students studying for professional degrees in the School of Arts, and also provides coursework postgraduate degrees at the honors and master's level, covering cultural policy and leadership, creativity, culture in the economy, strategic planning in the arts, marketing, fundraising and audience development, and cultural entrepreneurship. Several students are pursuing research masters and PhD degrees in the department. In this discussion, we explore Avril's own trajectory from an MPhil in developmental economics at Sussex University to a career as a researcher in labor relations and urban development before moving into the field of cultural policy. In this field, Avril is an internationally recognized expert, advising on policy to the South African government and an appointment as an expert member of UNESCO's cultural policy and governance facility. We look closely at Avril's interest in creative methodologies as a tool for researchers collecting data, and the groundbreaking international conference on creative methodologies and urban research that Avril co-organized in 2021. We also discuss the future of cultural policy and whether or not government policy in post-apartheid South Africa has fostered or hindered the creative arts. We weigh up the challenges of working with cultural institutions in authoritarian states such as China, and finally, we discuss the ways in which creative artists can productively engage with questions of cultural policy. Avril, it's a great pleasure that we can sit down and talk. There's so many things that I want to discuss with you, in particular, your advocacy of creative methodologies as a research technique for data collection. I understand this as the application of creative practices, not by artists, but by urban and social researchers. I think this poses an interesting challenge in our context where we are striving to develop an African inflection of artistic or practice-led research. But first, I'd like to begin by asking you about your personal journey. What brought you to take up the headship of a Department of Cultural Policy and Management in a School of Creative Arts? Well, thanks, Christo. It's really good that we can have this conversation. And yeah, that's, that's quite a big question. Firstly, I did not set it up. It was there. I found it here. 
but let's talk a little bit about how I got to this point. I'm an economic sociologist and I've been doing research or had been doing research in development for a long time, very interested in how society functions in a very unequal world, have always been a social justice activist during apartheid, worked with people like Bayes Nordias, he's PA for about six years, including from when he was banned to when he moved into the South African Council of Churches and was always one of those people that was asked to do background research to support arguments. And so in a way, I became a kind of professional researcher. I set up an organization called CRIC, Community Resource Information Center. Uh, we had a place called Happiness Hall just in Bramfontein which got bombed by the police at some point during the states of emergency. But there we were providing support to unions, women's groups, community groups around how to think about our society, how to, how to understand it so that people can then develop solutions and practice that enable them to change it. So that's always been where I've come from. And a lot of my background is about the unions and labor. And then I left sociology department at WITS in the early 90s when the world was changing quite dramatically. The new government was about to come into power and there was a lot of need for sort of thinking about post-apartheid industrial policy. I worked with colleagues in, in Cape Town, developed a book called Post-Industrial Manufacturing Policy, worked with Economic Trends, which was part of the Kasatu at the time. And I think because of that, in 96, the Department of Arts and Culture asked me to develop an industrial policy for culture. And I remember saying to them, what on earth was, would that be? And what do you mean? What is an industrial policy for culture? And they said, well, look, we understand the artistic disciplines. We understand all the cultural practices, but we don't speak the language that we need to, to mainstream the cultural industries and the cultural sector in the larger government. A lot of the people that I was talking to were my friends. They were artists who had gone into government as they were curators, they were exhibitors, but they weren't economists and they didn't have the language. And so really I was seen as someone who can bring some different language to talk about the cultural industries. And we developed something called the Cultural Industry Growth Strategy in 1996 to about 1998. That led to a, new, a change in my own personal direction from working with labor and big manufacturing companies and looking at world-class manufacturing techniques and how trade unions could think about that differently to thinking about the creative sector. It, it was so fascinating. It was just this minefield of people and places and incredibly interesting creatives that I was meeting but in spaces that were very similar to everything I'd understood. Exploitative environments, precarious working environments, management relations that were not really suitable for the creative sector. And so I uh, separated from my, my company, it was called Labor Market Alternatives, started something called Creativity Avril Joffe, I couldn't find a better name, then converted that to called Culture Arts and Jobs. And I started working as a professional researcher in the field, working with uh, the ILO, developing policies around how to support local business development and job creation using the cultural sector, working with UNCTAD, looking at how to develop export strategies for film in Senegal. And that led me all the way to then becoming one of the members of the UNESCO Expert Facility on Cultural Governance. So I really began my work as a creative industry strategist 
and an industry person and I moved all the way then to culture again to understand what are the cultural understandings of what we do and how we work and how communities develop and how policy is made and what's the purpose. And I was doing a lot of traveling internationally. My kids were quite young. I had three kids and Monica Newton and Brett Piper and Joseph Gaylord were all in the department called Arts, Culture and Management. And Monica was then holding a lot of the courses. And she said to me, I can't manage. She was a National Arts Council, I think, CEO at the time, was moving to government. And she just couldn't manage the program and said, please just step in for me. We'll have to chat later. So I just took over as a sessional lecturer. And at the end of that program, that semester, she said, I can't actually do this. I'm going to resign. Why don't you think of taking it on? And I had been asked a long time ago when it was set up in 2000, but I wasn't interested at that moment. And, and actually, it was just a perfect time in my personal life. I wanted to be more in Joburg. I wanted to be more around with my kids. I need a reason to be in, in, in uh, South Africa. So having a job at WITS was a perfect idea. And I also realized that by the time my kids got to university, I could support them with an academic degree as well, which is one of the wonderful benefits of being at WITS. So that's how I got to WITS, really. And when I got to the department, it was still called Arts, Culture and Management. It was a very small department. Cynthia Cross was ahead of it. When I came in, Non Tobeko also came in. She was managing the heritage side of it. I was managing the arts and culture management side. And it was still only a postgrad diploma and a master's degree, much smaller. The whole idea of the program, very, very much about transformation, was about bringing mid-career professionals into thinking about the academic part of what they were doing and, you know, grounding their work in theory and research. But they didn't have an academic background, so the postgrad diploma was fantastic for that purpose. And then, as you know, the Doe had changed its rules. The postgrad diploma was downscaled to under a, an honours degree. It wasn't a throughput degree anymore. Possibility for our students to go into the masters. So we started rethinking what we were doing. We also were very aware at the time that training people to be arts managers in arts administration is not the best thing to do at a university. That really should be done in a training program. It should be done on the job. It's not something you can teach from a theoretical perspective. So we reconfigured the whole sort of degree at that moment. Let me come in at that moment, Avril. Seems to me it's quite challenging to situate a department of cultural management in a school of creative arts. And I know at around this time when you joined, there were arguments running that a department of cultural management should be part of the school of management. It should be seen as an element in business management, the discipline of business management, just with an arts aspect to it. What is the reason for CPM being in the school of arts? And is it easy fit or is it necessarily contradictory? It's a good question and it's one that we have grappled with a lot. It's even come up in a QPR process, uh, the 2015 one, where some of the reviewers asked us, why are we here? What is our purpose of being there? But already at that point, we had been thinking about it. So we had a very deep understanding that we were drawing on the practice of arts 
and the creatives that were coming through the school, through the professional degrees, who had chosen or had decided that their professional degrees as an artist or creative was not where they wanted to go. They wanted to create the work for others. They wanted to support the work of other creatives because they began to understand the lie of the land, the, the ecosystem of the creative sector, and they wanted to support the work. And we realized that actually being at the School of Arts was not a disadvantage in any way. In fact, it was a real advantage. It gave us the possibility to think about play, creativity, artistic expression, and draw from that in our program. And our students were all artists themselves. So when we thought about it being at a management school, we thought that they would feel marginalized. They would, by definition, be a marginalization of the creative thinking and, and the cultural management program in a management school. And there are many people who've now written about this, people like Everett and, and Francois Colbert. They've said that the theoretical structure management is different from the sector the arts. And there's a place for a distinction of what is arts management, very distinct from management, in the same way that cultural entrepreneurship is distinct from entrepreneurship, or social entrepreneurship even. And we started really reading quite a lot of what other people were writing about, about arts management. And in fact, arts management is a bit of a narrowing of the understanding. We really are talking about cultural administration. Because we're looking at the management of creative and arts assets in a cultural environment and in the environment of, of a fully-fledged cultural context, which is distinct from place to place. So our view, and we actually ask our students as well, what would you feel if this program was in a management school? How would it change the way you were thinking? And while some students say it would give them a harder skill set or something more valued in society, most of our students felt that the purpose of the, of the cultural policy and management program was much more suited to being in the School of Arts and in a humanities faculty. So I work with many other departments of cultural policy and management that are not in a humanities faculty. The one I'm working with in Antwerp, we have a partnership agreement with them. They're in the faculty of economics and management, and they talk about the difficulties of holding that space. Their students are forced to do, well, forced to do, they have to do economics, undergraduate courses in order to come into the cultural management, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it just means that the, who they attract is very different. The way they teach is very different. Their pedagogical practice is different. And I think that's what we're very attracted to, which is why we've got all the way now, finally, to the creative methodologies, because I think it starts bringing together the work of and the practice of our students and the way they can now do research. I don't know why it took us so long to get here. I'm glad we've got here, because I think it's a really important development in the work of our program. I'm glad we got to creative methodologies on this podcast at this point as well. Talk us through this notion of creative methodologies and the relation between creative methodologies and collecting data, urban development, urban studies. And you, of course, had that conference back in October last year on creative methodologies for uncovering data on the urban. I've become very aware that there are quite a few people in 
our general community who are increasingly using creative methods, not just to disseminate research or showcase research or reveal research, but to find out what is happening, to, to really do deep sense making of the context in which people find themselves. So we obviously know the empathetre work of Neil Copham and people like that, but there's so much more out there. And so talking to my colleague, Monique Marx, who I had met when we were both in sociology department at WITS, she's now the professor of urban futures at DUT, we were talking about this relationship we had with the SASF program, which is Swedish universities, South African universities. We had this uh, wonderful partnership and the key woman involved, Zainab, unfortunately passed away from COVID. One of the very first people I knew who had passed away from COVID. And we left the partnership in a way hanging because we didn't have a partner. And then her colleagues emerged and said, let's do something in our honor. And we started talking about, let's do a colloquium on all the work that is happening out there around creative methodologies. And so we did a scan of the global world and, and we found 10 to 12, 15 people who we thought were really working in interesting ways, including some South Africans, Hanley Kutsir, Neil Copham, Kira Irwin, Patty Hammond, but a lot of international people working with photo voice, cultural mapping, like Nancy Duxbury, people working with creative writing even. And so we said, let's do a colloquium and let's think about the colloquium as the beginning of a research course so that everybody's invited to speak for about, we have an hour for each person. They speak for up to 40 minutes, 40, 40 45 minutes, and we have some Q&A around that. And they need to give us some reference articles that we can read about their work or other people who've written about that work. But we ask them to talk about it from a point of view of how would you engage with this in the field and how have they engaged with it in the field and give us some examples. So we gave a very clear direction to everybody. These one-hour videos are now our course. We can give them to our students. They can listen. We have literature to attach to it. And we then can have a conversation with our students in class to say, what about that was attractive to you? Would you use it? How would you use it? How would it help you answer the questions you are asking? So for me, the creative methodologies is different from artistic practice in that it's about using creative methods to, to find the data, to understand the data. It's not about putting your work out there for exhibition. In fact, you can have an exhibition, but the exhibition typically, or the theater performance, typically is another opportunity to uncover data. So the Empathiater has uh, uh, put together their theater production based on the research. They then can show it to a strategic bunch, uh, audience or, or the respondents, and you then have a new conversation, how people respond to that, which then reveals new information about the intersections, the interactions, the nuances, the complexities, which provides another layer of data. In the same way, photo voice allows you to maybe have an exhibition of your photos. You can engage with those photos, ask people to come and discuss it in your community. If you're taking photos of a community arts center, for example, or somewhere like that. And then you can have a conversation. What does this mean to you? What should we do about these problems? What are some of the solutions we have to engage with? Or why is this happening? What is the reason for this happening? So it's, 
I think it's allowing us to do exactly what we're doing with the change of the curriculum. Going from writing cultural policy, writing marketing plans, writing business plans, to understanding why you have cultural policy, to understanding what the purpose of a marketing plan is, to understand the different business models that cultural entrepreneurs have, not to write them. That's an, that's for a, prog- a training program. In the same way, we say to our students, you can't change the world in your res- master's research. Yes, everybody, need, we need to change our world, but your research is to understand it first. After you've done your research, you might have the information, the data, the evidence you could use to develop some strategies and recommendations. But think of the research as this unique opportunity to delve deep and to really understand what's what's going on in our very, very complex world. And it's I think creative methodologies gives us an opportunity to say to students and to help our students recognize the messiness of our lives, the messiness of how things happen, whether it's cultural policy implementation or community engagement or audience engagement or whatever it is, it's nothing is clear cut. And I think all these methodologies and you know, one of the ones I'm very attracted to is cultural mapping because it allows you not just to understand what's out there, but to have some understanding of how people make sense of the places in that they inhabit and the reason why artists and creatives like to agglomerate around particular areas. What, what are those areas offering? What are the infrastructures that are available? The technologies, the facilities, how people then use that to create new work and become more creative. Apple, can you give us a more concrete example of how cultural mapping works? Yeah, so cultural mapping is, I mean, it's used in many diverse ways. And the leading theorist and author of this is a woman called Nancy Duxbury. And I've been attuned to her work for a long time because one of the first jobs I ever did for the city of Johannesburg was to map all the spaces and places where arts, performance, studios were happening. And we, I looked at, I literally took a map larger than my wall and I had it on the floor and I had these little dots, you know, those little uh, labels you can get of different color dots. And we took different directories, craft directories, film directories, music directories, and so on, and websites and looked at where people were placed and discovered that film or film businesses, film organizations, film makers agglomerated around SABC and MNET. Visual artists, performing artists conglomerated around Newtown, Rosebank. Obviously, in the townships, we found all sorts of different people agglomerating around various streets or studios that were available or backroom venues and so on. So this became a really interesting experiment to understand if, you know, it was an attempt for city of Joburg to say Joburg's a cultural capital of South Africa. And this was an attempt to, to show them where everybody is based. And the, and also we use different size labels if it was a big organization like SABC or Mnet compared to a small company or an artistic association. And obviously Joburg is the heart of all of it. Everybody's based in Joburg, the head offices of everybody, Sam Rowe Foundation, a lot of community arts, NAC, NFEF. So we started understanding that cultural infrastructure being based in a city provides a very interesting set of relationships with the artists and creatives who then choose to work nearby. 
So that's one way you can use mapping. And obviously now with technology, you can do GIS mapping. You can actually, there are many people who now put it on websites where you can click on Johannesburg, you can click on Bromfontein, and you can find all the organizations that are there, the heritage sites, heritage routes, whatever you want to look for, and click on it and discover a little write-up about it, their own website. It provides a knowledge base, but that's not the purpose of it. For me, the purpose of mapping is to start understanding why it is like that. Who's put the money in to develop that? Who's thinking about it? Is it a private-led initiative? Is it a public initiative? How do artists feel about those spaces? Are they utilizing them? Do they feel it's elitist, like in Maboneng? Are there contestations about those places? How do people make sense and meaning from being in those spaces? And that's the other part of mapping, the more softer questioning of people using space in a particular way. So it's very much a spatial understanding. And I think one of the people who spoke in our conference used mapping to understand ownership, land ownership in, in a city. They did a walkabout of the city and every time they came somewhere, they looked up on the Google Maps and, and the GIS system, who owns a building, who's in that building, how is it used, is it open to the public, not open to the public. These are very important issues of public culture. The access to spaces is a major concern for our sector. Access to rehearsal space, to performance space, to just general space for meeting and making work. So I think mapping is going to be very interesting for some of our students looking at where community arts centers are placed and how they get utilized by the community living around it. And whether it's a, really a community-based body or it's an organization that is set up for artists to come and practice and perform and rehearse. Is it talking out to the community or is it inward looking? These are also things that mapping can show you. And it just provides another way for our researchers, our student researchers, to have those conversations with the lived reality of their respondents. And I think it's part of the decolonization of how we think about research and how we think about curriculum. Our students want to understand their lives and the lives in which they come from. And the readings and the authors we giving them, the canons, so to speak, are the global north. The experiences are different. The structures are different. The infrastructure is different. Obviously, there's a disconnect. We have to find a way to balance that. And I think the creative methodologies, I'm really excited about how students are going to approach it. They're very concerned about it. They don't really know how they're going to use it. It's, it's new. And then as one person said to me yesterday in the classroom, why are you only thinking about this now? Why is this so new to us? You know, how come you didn't introduce this four years ago? Yeah, well, okay, we're all human and we're fallible and we take time to understand. And that's what we've been doing. At least we are listening. Abel, you spoke about, obviously, the decolonial imperative, and you've been very articulate about the need to engage with developments in the global north, as in this conference you had last year, for instance, which featured a number of inputs from particularly Scandinavia. Yet, you're very aware of the difference that our context, our African context, imposes on thinking. Can you explore that a bit further? What does it mean to work with institutions in the global north? I know you have relations with institutions in the UK, Goethe Institute. You work closely with them as well. It's about two things. It's about helping the global north 
understanding the complex reality of the global south and recognizing that some of the dynamics that we have in place are dynamics that they are now experiencing. For example, we've always understood that our cultural economy is very deeply linked to the informal economy. People choose not to be registered, not to be above the radar, working very fluidly in spaces that they set up, that they close down, venues are not permanent. This informality gives a lot of creatives agility and very quick ability to be responsive to new opportunities. So for some creatives, it's a problem because they then, for example, during COVID became very clear, a lot of people couldn't get access to COVID relief. They didn't have evidence of a canceled contract, for example. But nevertheless, they're still choosing to stay in the informal space. With the rise of the gig economy in the global north, this is the way in which many people are choosing to work, to be informally organized themselves, to be own account workers, to be freelancers, to not be in established spaces and places. And in fact, the work I'm doing with the UK is to help them understand our context, including that of Latin America, India, South Asia, and so on, so that they can better understand their context. So it's not about just learning from the global north. It's also inputting in new information and thinking that helps them understand their own context. And I'm really gratified by that because I think it starts changing the balance of power about how we need to think about the global south. A lot of what we do is in fact derivative and a lot of what has been derivative has been a problem. For example, drawing on definitions of the culture and creative industries from the DCMS, the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture in the UK, uh, sports media and, and so on. Those definitions are very individually based, based on the exploitation of intellectual property, levels of creativity and skill. Our country adopts that. What does it mean when they adopt a definition that has no real location in our reality of how creatives and artists work? and how their, their practice has emerged. It means that there's a lack of understanding about what the sector should be doing. And so government starts imposing things like, tell us how many jobs you're creating, tell us how much income you're developing, your uh, turnover you, you are developing. It's pushing an economic reductionism onto the sector. And it's part of the reason why our sector is so fragmented, why there's so much distrust between civil society and government, because there's a recognition that government's not understanding how, the, how complex and fluid and deeply different the way in which we work in the global south compared to how people work in the UK or Europe. And that is part of what we want our students to understand. We want our students to engage with that material and to then say, to reference it and to then reflect on it and to say, does this make sense for our context? Why doesn't it? Where does it? Where doesn't it? So to be very critical about what we are bringing from Global North understandings. And the only way to do that is to constantly engage with what they are thinking. To ignore it would not help us. You know, the West doesn't own Western thinking. The Western's thinking is as Ashil Mbembe always says, you know, it's, it's a composite of inputs from Africa, diaspora and so on. We need to take ownership of that thinking and think about it from our perspective. And that's really what we're trying to do in the program. Let's talk about Eastern thinking 
and your perhaps rather controversial engagement with the Center for Cultural and Creative Industries at Peking University, which you've been very public about it. You've been very proud of the relationship, which also involves exchange, and you've had a conference, these conference together. How do you feel about criticisms that it's very problematic at this stage to be engaged with any kind of official Chinese institutions in the light of the horrendous human rights violations that are taking place, for instance, against Uyghurs, against Tibetans. What is the value in that relationship with the Chinese? What is their thinking around cultural management, cultural administration? Do they also think about creative economy as a, as a dynamic? So I'd really like to hear more. That relationship came through university, actually, through the administration of university, who encouraged us to respond to a request for collaboration. And the first port of call was Brett Piper was in a conference and had met uh, Professor Xiang Yong, who is the head of the Institute of Cultural Industries at PKU in Beijing, and said, maybe this is something we should explore. And then I was invited to their international conference on for masters and PhD students. It was a summer school. And I went to China as a guest of theirs and was part of their 10-day program and gave three different inputs around how we think about the creative economy, how we think about rural development, and how we think about policy. What I was struck by was that for them, the distinction between arts, culture, and heritage doesn't exist. For them, it's one field. The heritage that they bring from, which they speak about thousands of years, is what informs how they think about culture now and how they think about their cultural organizations. And in fact, the work that we, the, one of the conferences we went, we were at was in a rural community, which was incredibly interesting to me in that it was done with the entire community. The entire community came to the conference. They had artistic performances, dance. They brought people from different villages from around the area. Local community did, a, did their local traditional dancing. There was music and there was discussions. And the discussions were with the local authority, business people, artists, civil society. Civil society is very small, but there were people there who are from those areas. What was interesting to me is that the openness in which they were having the conversation, I didn't expect it. Actually asked Professor Xiang Yong, you know, how does this square with, you know, the society in which you, are, you find yourself? He said, well, look, Peking University has always been seen as a little bit of an outlier. I mean, they were the heart of the student body that started the Tiananmen Square protest, came from PKU University. They are known to be a little bit more critical of what goes on. And in fact, as one of the students said to me, if you come to PKU, don't assume you can ever work in government. You are, we are not the people that will be drawn into the bureaucracy. And we know that. Coming here, we know that. And I found that also interesting. There's a level of reflexive understanding about their own positionality. Talking openly about problems is almost impossible. All right? There's a real sense you're being watched, you're being listened to, you're being seen. However, I found the discussion with the students incredibly vibrant. 
and robust. And they were engaging with a lot of the same things that we engage with. What is a Chinese understanding of our creative and cultural economy? They didn't try and define it. They didn't draw from anybody else's understanding. Their understanding was very much more about arts, culture and heritage, which I also found very refreshing because I think that's what we're missing in our creative economy approach. We've lost the relationship to arts, culture and heritage. But I also didn't find that I was stopped from speaking. And one of the things that I was presenting to them is a concern about Chinese investment in infrastructure, cultural infrastructure in Africa. We had a very open conversation where I was putting forward my concerns that of that it might crowd out local culture. It comes with a lot of bells and whistles in typical Chinese investment fashion. It's not necessarily linked into local needs. It hasn't come from an organic expression of what it is that whether it's Ghana or Abidjan or Kenya has said they want. And that's really where my interest comes in. I think we cannot ignore China. We cannot ignore China's influence on culture generally, but definitely we cannot ignore China's influence on culture from an economic and financial perspective on the African continent. We have to understand it. If PKU staff and students are willing to think about that with us, all well and good, because I think it really helps to get an understanding of what that is. I've just recently done some research in Kenya, trying to understand how people view Chinese investment in the media industry there, in filmmaking, in new films that are being produced, soaps and so on, soapies and so on, as well as in infrastructure. It's difficult to find people who are receiving that money to speak negatively about it, of course. So you have to start understanding what is it doing to that local environment. And it concerns me. So I think the relations with PKUs, we've already done a joint project together about cultural trade between China and Africa. No issues over there. And this work we're trying to do now about understanding investment in African cultural infrastructure, they say they want to participate in, but obviously COVID has put a stop to a lot of our collaboration. They were meant to attend our International Summer School, which you referenced last year, but obviously couldn't because of COVID. We were hoping they would bring them out this year, but now, as you know, Beijing is shut down. Shanghai has been shut down. They can't travel. So this project is ending next year. We kept extending it, hoping we could bring our Chinese counterparts to South Africa to participate in our classes and to take them around in the way they took us around. I'm not the only person who's gone. Zaid, Minty and Chatty have also gone as, as guests of PKU. The idea really was that in the joint conference that we would hear about Chinese culture and cultural work, cultural economy. We would hear about how they're working with rural development. And that was all very interesting in the conference. We didn't have enough people from China. Obviously, English is not an easy language for them. And we don't speak Chinese. So we really at a terrible disadvantage. We didn't organize translations. It was only those students who felt able to present. But yeah, the jury is out, I think, on where this goes and what it means. That's a, a very spirited, convincing defense of the value of maintaining engagement with, with uh, powerful but problematic partners such as China. Interested to hear, you know, in relation to the creative economy, which you voice some skepticism about that notion in our context, the university, of course, is reorientating itself towards an emphasis on 
research and innovation, with innovation being really the key term now. From your experiences, particularly as a researcher into arts, culture, administration, the relationship to development, what argument could you make or can be made that a creative arts school is an essential part of fostering innovation in a research university? That's a really important question. And I think it's become even more obvious right now during COVID. The levels of precarity of our sector, the alienation of our students during the COVID pandemic, the frustrations and experienced around the lack of infrastructure access to resources and so on, has made us all have to think more innovatively about everything we do, whether it's from pedagogic practice to curriculum design, to engaging with our students more socially and from a emotional, empathetic point of view, to thinking about what does innovation mean? And when I heard that the research office has included research and innovation, I started wondering, what well, does it mean that every time you write a research project now, a proposal, it, you, you need to show how innovative it's going to be or that it is, in fact, innovative? Isn't research all innovative? Isn't that what we've always wanted research to be, to be new, to discovering new understandings of the world that we are inhabiting, to advance knowledge, to advance understanding? So this idea of innovation can be seen as a very one-sided and economistic, almost Schumpeterian, you know, bring back my economics training here and think like only, you know, we have rounds of destruction and creation and destruction and creation. And it's only about those big innovations. But I think it's about all the little innovations. It's all the small, minute innovations that people are putting into place in their curricula, in their pedagogic practice, in their artistic practice, in their social engagement with society, in their response to policy, in the way they are working. That changes how we think. So I'm not unhappy about the idea of innovation. I just think it's not true to say it's new. It's always been part of what we do as academics and intellectuals in a public university. So for me, the, my worry about the culture and creative economy is that creativity is not, does not only belong to the creatives and to artists. Creativity is everywhere that we don't have a monopoly on creativity, just like we don't have a monopoly on innovation. However, to exclude the creative sector and to exclude arts practice and the cultural economy from a humanities or a broader university would be equally problematic because so much of that creativity and thinking comes from those spaces and places where you're not trying to solve a problem, where you're trying to understand the world that you're in. And yes, of course, social science can do that, sociology can do that, uh, politics can do that, philosophy can do that. But the arts do it in a different way. And it opens up conversation and it provokes people to think differently. And I think a university, every university should have an art school attached to it. You know, and I think that I feel very privileged that our cultural policy and management programs here in the art school, because I think this is where we get, we feeding off the creativity, the innovativeness of the general body of faculty, of students, of practice. I would make a very strong argument if anybody were to say we should not have the art school in a research innovation centre. 
And I think many people are now thinking about the arts, artistic practice and creative methods to solve other problems. For example, just to finish on this point, the person who spoke about photo voice, she's actually a South African, Mahuba Mosavel. She left South Africa many, many years ago and has been in the States. But her work is about health. So she looks at health systems, but she used photo voice to understand the problems of health systems, meeting the needs of cancer patients, meeting the needs of people with disability. So she's using creative methodologies to solve those problems. The other place I've come across wonderful use of artistic practice to build social cohesion and community engagement is after big hurricanes in the in the states where the way in which they bring they give people a little bit more sense of themselves and a bit more comfort in who they are and allows them to express themselves more fully is through artistic practice that so people wherever you look you can find people using dance performing arts visual arts filmmaking to help communities recover and develop better, more resilience to withstand the very unfriendly climatic environment we're in at the moment. Those are very important things. You know, one of the things UNESCO has just understood through their department of called Small Island Development States is that to develop uh, these small islands resilient capacity, we need to use culture and the creative arts to develop that resilience in the community to cope and deal with the disasters that are coming their way every single day. That leads us to perhaps ponder how South African government policy has been fostering or hindering the creative arts, development of the creative arts, or creative economy in post-apartheid South Africa. I think, for instance, of the great uh, unhappiness that manifested in the sit-ins in April last year, led by the very charismatic opera singer Sibungele Ngoma for a long time. And most recently, you know, where we have the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture actually proposing to spend $22 million on a, a single flagpole with a giant flag. <laughs> I think it was $26 million on a flagpole that is not going to be the tallest in the world, but it's going to be lit up at night, given our Eskom challenges. I mean, it's rather ludicrous and, you know, completely gobsmacked that that could even be suggested right now. And the fact is it was in the budget vote, was approved in Parliament. It wasn't just pie in the sky thinking of our wonderful minister. It actually was adopted And there's a lovely meme going around at the moment with our president saying that the minister phoned him and said there's all this backlash and what should he do? And he said, cancel it. (laughs) So that's, I think, where it's going to land up. It's going to land up being cancelled. But it's clearly an opportunity for a tenderpreneur to make some money, quite frankly. And it has no bearing on anything. It has no bearing on policy, on the way in which artists practice their work. So... There is a real disjuncture. It has got worse and worse and worse between the departments and civil society and their thinking. I was talking about this earlier. It's partly to do with their real, I think, quite simplistic view that the cultural economy is some kind of benign economy where work is wonderful, that people are 
creative and they produce all these wonderful things and they are paid well and everything's wonderful. It's not a banana economy at all. It's a very exploitative, precarious, unstable economy where there's no decent work at all for anybody. There's no standards. There's no union representation. There's no social dialogue. There's no real understanding by government what it needs to do to ensure their social protection for the artists and creators. There's no unemployment insurance benefits, maternity benefits. All of this has been discussed since 96. It's all been on the table in various forms, one way or another, with the Department of Labor, via the Department of Arts and Culture, through strategies that have been written and seemingly accepted. Government's great at writing policies, by the way. They write nice policies. The policies are nothing wrong with the policy. But you've got, to dis- you've got to have a distinction between what is policy and what is government. Government's ability to implement policy is zero in the current context. There's no real understanding of the needs of the artists and the creative community. So policy exists as some kind of rarefied piece of paper out there. It's almost like a wish list. It's not sufficiently translated into actions and planning of the department. So if you look at the department's annual performance plan, you don't see any of the suggestions that were made in the policy that they've adopted, was approved by cabinet in 2018, endorsed by parliament in February 2020. You don't see those action items in the annual performance plan. If they're not in the annual performance plan, who's making it happen? That's the only place where things happen. That defines what each land department in government does. So the real implementing agent of policy in our country for culture is the NAC, NFEF and National Heritage Council. As you know, the NAC is being completely discredited over the way in which it handled the uh, presidential employment stimulus package. For me, that was an incredible disaster, not least because... I was instrumental in making sure we got the presidential employment stimulus package at all as the creative sector. We weren't in the list. We were not going to be a beneficiary of that money. It was going to be forestry and education and health and tourism and other departments. So getting the creative sector in there was something, together with a lot of my colleagues, we made sure happened. The fact that we then got 300 million rand into the NAC, which was three times our usual annual budget, by the way, I think was itself a great success. But then there's the timing, the rush to implement, the incredible work that the NAC had to do to make sure that they could deliver on that promise. In an organization that's used to having two offerings of grants a year, one in April and the bursaries in, November, in September, October, November, suddenly had, were doing four in one year. They were doing COVID relief because government realized they couldn't do COVID relief, so it was given to the NAC. They were doing usual grants, COVID relief one, COVID relief two, COVID relief three, plus a PSP in one year with the same staff. A little bit of extra capacity. I think 13 new people came on board. But to understand the systems that are available at the NAC, I think the, the institution collapsed under that. And yet, I mean, yes, there was a lot of problems, but no money went missing. All the money was paid out. There was no corruption, but there was mismanagement. There was miscommunication. There was false promises. And there was a failure to engage fully with the people who were very frustrated and angry. Partly, 
I blame it again, I'm sorry to say, on the department because the department had a board in place. That board was ending its tenure in 2020 in the middle of PSP. And they would not extend the term of that board for another month. That's all they asked. One more month to finish the allocation of the PSB, at least that the allocation was done. And then the next board could make sure that the delivery of the reporting and so on was done. We would have, should have had three more months. Refused. The new board comes in in January in the middle of the allocations. So it's not yet concluded. It's not yet finalized. It's a mess. We knew it was going to be a mess. We told them it's going to be a mess. We said, don't do it. Anyway, so that's part of the problem. It's a lack of responsiveness of government, an inability to be agile, an inability to really listen. And it's a bit of competitiveness, I'm sorry to say, between the department and its agencies. The NAC is an agency of government. So is the NFEF. So is the National Heritage Council. So is the Market Theatre. But they compete with those agencies. They run their own funding through the Mzanzi Golden Economy, which is exactly what the NAC does. They run their own festivals. It's exactly what the sector does. Why are they competing? In fact, in the discussions we had around cultural policy, I was one of the nine review members that looked at the new cultural policy. We asked government, why are you doing the things that the sector is meant to do? Why are you competing with the sector and why are you duplicating what your agencies do? And the response we got was because when we present our budget vote, we have to show that we're doing something. I said, but you should show what your 26 agencies are doing. I mean, they've got 26 agencies. What they're doing is what you're doing. They are yours. You're giving the money. You don't need to do anything else. You should do strategy, policy, monitoring and evaluation, research. That's it. And it was like a little bit of a, oh, that's interesting. So these are part of the problems. There's not one reason, but there's no doubt in my mind that policy is not engaging with what people want to see. And all the policy now needs to be translated into strategic planning. And we invited Professor Olifant to one of our sessions in our department, who was the chair of the review committee. And he informed the department that, in fact, there are now strategic action plans happening. He couldn't tell us who's involved in them or the depth of engagement with the sector. And is there any joint decision making happening? But the fact is that there is something happening there, but we don't see it. And the sector, when they don't see something happening, the assumption is there's nothing happening. And this decision of the flagpole is simply, it's kind of the creative expression of the problem, isn't it? I mean, it's like, it could be a meme in itself. Yeah, sticking 100 meters up into the air. Avril, last question, and it relates very much to the policy chaos and governmental confusion you're describing. How should creative artists and students studying to be creative artists, how should they be engaging with this policy situation? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a good question and it's one that I've been considering and pondering about for a long time and I've changed my mind many times. I initially thought students should engage very robustly and regularly with policy discussions when we were, you know, at various points in our time in my last 10 years here, there's been opportunities to engage with that policy. But students find it very alienating. They don't understand where it's all going, what's it for. Students like to work in their 
own areas of competence and professional practice. And so actually what we've now done is say, actually our students should be engaging with the nuances, with the everyday, with the experiences of their communities where they are working, organizations where they're working, and try and understand that very fluid, complicated and messy world and not come up with solutions. So that's the other thing we're trying to help our students recognize that research is for a very particular purpose. It's a unique opportunity to understand the world and look at it from a very minute point of view. It's a research project at a master's level. We do have some PhD students doing bigger research projects, but there are many aspects of our life that we don't understand. So our students are doing amazing research that are very deeply policy, have policy implications, but is not engaging with a big policy discussion. So for example, one of our students is looking at the balance of rights between freedom of expression as enshrined in our constitution and cultural rights as also enshrined in our constitution through a chapter nine agency came up very importantly during Inkleba, The Wound, the film, and she's looking at that movie to say, what is the balance of rights? Which trumps which? And who decides? Really important piece of research that I think would have tremendous application for a, a policy conversation. Another student's looking at why are cultural entrepreneurs choosing to stay in townships where there's so little facilities, infrastructure, financial institutions, Wi-Fi, etc. And what does it mean about engaging with township economies more fruitfully for our cultural entrepreneurs who are choosing to base themselves there? Another uh, two students of ours did some commissioned research for the NAC long ago that was about what is the impact of the funding that the NAC is giving the creative, the, the craft sector. And the one student chose to look at rural development around small organizations mostly run by rural women at small grants and the other student looked at large grants going to big organizations like artist proof studios and people like that to where the extent to the extent to which it built resilience in those organizations did the funding develop a capacity for resilience very important questions because if funding's not doing that what is it doing it's just going to a big black hole it's a bit like i always say the nsc is a bit like an atm you know, because of the deep inequalities in our society and the fact that people cannot put food on their table, a small grant from the NAC is food on the table. And in the absence of a basic income grant for the entire creative sector, we will always see the NAC like a cash cow and it can't then do its job. Other people have looked at why are there so many new artistic cooperatives coming up on the continent that are interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, you know, visual artists working with musicians and filmmakers? What is that development about? How do we understand it? Obviously, you don't have to ask the question, what does it mean for policy? But it's a deeply policy question. I'll just give one more example. One of our students looked at urban practices of the local state, looked at Etiquini, what happened to their cultural policy development? Why did it come unstuck? And looked at the ways in which different agents and power relations and brokers, intercultural brokers, actually impeded the process. So I think that's the right way for artists and creatives to engage with policy by understanding the smaller nuances in whatever spaces they find themselves. Avril, that's very eloquent and I think excellent direction to, to artists, particularly art students, to find areas of engagement. So we'll end there and I hope there'll be many opportunities to continue the discussions over the next six years. Great. Thanks, Christo. 
Thanks for the opportunity. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christo Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the BIT School of Arts, and my guest, Avril Joffe, the previous Head of the Department of Cultural Policy and Management in the BIT School of Arts. The podcast was hosted and produced by myself, with technical production by Elna Schutz. It was funded by the Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the WIT School of Arts, University of the WIT Vardesrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast was composed and recorded by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.